morning, everyone. We're going to start with a quiz here. Can you get the first picture up, Daniel? Look at it and tell me what's wrong with the picture. to me like it's uh, some sort of a controller for a video game. It, it could be that uh, it uh, depends on your perspective whether there is anything wrong with the picture. <laughs> it could be that uh, the man, a uh, young man sitting at the drums with his earphones on and a uh, video game controller in his hand feels that everything is as it, as it ought to be, but it looks like his parents don't feel quite the same. Uh, it's what some of us might term an adult child, right? A uh, child who grew up and became a man, but seems in some way to remain in his childhood. Um, it could be sad for a number of reasons. Uh, the parents might want him out of their house. They might not appreciate the loud music, uh, the smell maybe other things that are associated with his behavior. But I think most of all, and more uh, relevant to our study, they may uh, be disappointed in what the son became, right? Perhaps as this little one uh, was growing up, he ex uh, exhibited some great um, potential. Maybe he learned to read when he was five, he could uh, multiply large numbers in his head when he was eight, and uh, they thought they had an engineer on their hand, or a doctor, or, or someone with a potential for a, a great career. Maybe they felt he could become a great father, a great husband one day, have children of his own, produce grandchildren for them. And, uh, and yet they're disappointed because the son has failed to reach the potential that they had envisioned for him. Lights are coming on. <laughs> okay. Um, so I think the reason I, I show this is in some ways, in some way Paul feels the same way about the church at Corinth as we will look at the passage today because they uh, seem to be falling short of the potential that he saw in them, that he knew was in them, because as we were singing, Christ does not just live in us, he lived in them as well, and uh, they were not reaching the full potential of what they could be as a church. They didn't reach the full potential of what they could be as believers, and we will see today that that weighed down on Paul's heart, as he very much desired for them to reach their full potential. Okay, why don't you just put the regular lights up in general. Uh, you can turn them off for the next slide. I just feel weird being under the spotlight, I'm sorry. <laughs> Not going to get that much from me. Hopefully we will get it from the Word of God. Let's uh, read. Uh, we'll, we'll read the last chapter of 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 1 to 14. This will be the third time... I am coming to you by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every word shall be established. I have told you before 
and foretell as if I were present the second time. And now, being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but you, that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. And this we also pray, that you may be made complete. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness, sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Finally, brethren, farewell, become complete. Be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. That's how 2 Corinthians ends. Paul is uh, speaking to the Corinthians much as a father would speak to his children. And as he speaks here, it's easy for me to think of my own children. So here's a picture of my family, for those who are not familiar with our family. Maybe it'll show up at some point. There it is. And uh, I have four wonderful children. And uh, you sometimes look at these pictures and say, these children are veritable angels. But then you know the children. <laughs> And uh, you realize that maybe, maybe they fall just a little bit shy of being angels. And uh, we find, my wife and I, the truth of what the Bible says. Proverbs 13, 24 says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. There are areas in our children's lives that are not appropriate, or I should say there are things that our children do that are not appropriate, like hitting one of their siblings, right? Uh, if we did nothing about it, right, or if we even just said in a very kind way, please don't hit your brother, please don't hit your sister, we find, as the Bible says, we don't get much results. And uh, we actually have to apply discipline to them in order to get them to change. Now, it doesn't mean that we hate our children. It's the other way around. It says he who loves him, he who loves his child, disciplines him promptly. Why? Because we're looking at the future of our children. We realize if our children continue in that 
particular behavior, it's not going to be good for them as they grow up. So today they're hitting their siblings. Next, they might be hitting a classmate at school, and they uh, could be, um, what's the word, expelled, expelled out of school. Or they could be hitting a coworker and get fired from their job. Or they, they can do something worse to a person and end up in jail, right? And so this habit of hitting the, the siblings must be put to an end. And that, we find, as the Bible teaches, requires discipline. And Paul is talking about his need to apply discipline at the Corinthian church. Now, there are some modifiers we should consider when we talk about discipline, both at home and at the church. Uh, Paul says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word, word be established. So sometime, one of my children will come to me and say, my brother hit me. And I find that an investigation is in order. And I have to go to the offender and ask them their side of the story. And I might find that, well, before they hit their brother or sister, they themselves were the victim of some sort of crime. And uh, that needs to, it affects my response to the situation, right? If you're hitting your sibling out of the blue, it's a certain kind of response. If, you're hit, if your sibling hit you first, I need to modify my response to that situation. So it's important to get witnesses and to make sure that we're acting correctly to um, apply discipline. Uh, second, he says, as I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. It seems here that there's multiple warnings, multiple warnings before the discipline happened. Now, I don't know how many here have taken uh, the class uh, Growing Kids God's Way. And in Growing Kids God's Way, we were told, give one warning. <laughs> But the key is, you, you, you know, there needs to be a warning, but you don't just start disciplining your children on a first offense. They may not have even known it was wrong, or maybe they forgot, right? Uh, so it's probably best to start with warning before you, you discipline. And uh, then a third modifier, <clears throat> it's not in this passage, but it's in the previous one, in chapter 12, uh, the last verse, verse 12, 2 Corinthians 12, 21, Paul says, Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. And uh, what we see here in Paul is he did not enjoy disciplining. And our parents should not enjoy disciplining. I never enjoy disciplining. Uh, it is uh, first really the heart of the parent that hurts really over the child. Uh, humbled, it feels like a failure when I've instructed my children to do something and they repeatedly transgress what I've asked them to do. I feel like I have failed as a parent, and, uh, and it's sad. I, I, don't, I don't like applying discipline. It really must be the last resort 
when you recognize this is a character trait in my child that must be corrected for their good. And I'll finally take the action. And that's the way uh, Paul felt as well. Paul, uh, in this passage we just read, um, the last verse of chapter 12, he describes some of the area of sin in the Corinthian church that he must deal with, uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness. Uh, Paul has warned them about it, and, um, and now it's time he just has to take action. And so he tells them, um, if I come again, I will not spare. If I still find you practicing this sin, I have no choice. I must apply discipline. Now, what form of discipline did Paul take? We have it for us described in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's a case that Paul has already applied discipline. And so we can see what form it takes. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. So we have here a case of adultery, and the man is committing adultery with his own father's wife. And for some reason, the Corinthians felt that's okay. Right? You know, or maybe it's not okay, but we don't really have to do anything about it. Right? Well, Paul doesn't feel the same way. Uh, this is, again, it's a professing believer that is practicing this sin while fellowshipping at the Corinthian church. And nobody is doing anything about it. Well, Paul is going to do something about it. Verse 2, And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What form did the discipline take? The person was put out of fellowship. It's the word excommunicate comes out of that, putting him outside of the community. This person is no longer welcome. Don't let him come and partake with you uh, at the bread and, and the um, fruit of the vine at the Lord's Supper. He shouldn't be sitting there and participating. Right? The person needs to be put out of fellowship. Now, there is a spiritual dimension to this punishment. It says, deliver him to Satan. As I understand it, uh, the, by putting the person outside of the church, they're giving, in a sense, uh, an opportunity for Satan to attack him, say, in a similar way to how he attacked Job, right, with disease or, or various affliction. But the goal is for the benefit of the person that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, I believe this person was already saved in the sense that he was going to heaven, but he is failing to mature as a Christian, and he will have to uh, answer for his failure to developing and to living the kind of life the Lord Jesus wanted him to live at the judgment seat of Christ. And it's a desire of Paul to save him from that by getting him to repent, right? The goal is 
the repentance of the person, right? Hoping that he'll recognize by being put out of fellowship, by whatever happens to him physically, to change and stop committing adultery with his father's wife, right? That's really the desire, that there'll be a change in behavior, and that's the goal of the discipline. Okay. Now, we see that the issue that we've been dealing with in really all of 2 Corinthians, and that there seems to be a doubt of Paul as really representing Christ. Verse 3, he says, Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, even though Paul is the one who planted the church at Corinth, he is the one who came to them with the gospel, they believed the gospel, they were saved, and Paul built up that church. He spent a year and a half at Corinth. Well, now he's been gone for a period of time, and during his absence, false teachers have come in, and they're teaching a different doctrine than what Paul did, and they're dismissing Paul, claiming that he's not a true apostle, not really representing Christ, and the Corinthians should stop listening to Paul and instead listen to them, right? And so Paul is really on the defensive here at this epistle, and so he's reminding the Corinthians of this fact, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me. What is the proof that Paul is supplying here? Well, it's really the proof of disciplining the Corinthians. Uh, if you went to a park, so I have children, we uh, invariably end up at a city park somewhere every so often, and you see the kids playing at the park. And uh, occasionally, one of the children misbehaves. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. Maybe they're hitting another child. Maybe they're throwing rocks. Uh, maybe they're going up the wrong way on the slide. And hopefully, one of the adults who's sitting on the benches watching the whole thing gets up and deals with it and says, no, you can't hit her. No, you can't throw rocks. No, you cannot climb up the slide the wrong way. And what would you assume when you see that? That's the parrot. Right? That's what the parent does. <laughs> and that's what we see Paul doing here. He's actually proving that he is the spiritual father of the Corinthians by reacting to these sins in the Corinthian church. Somehow, the false teachers are allowing this to go on. They're doing nothing about it. The very fact that Paul is saying, no, I will not allow it to continue, shows a father's heart. I want to correct my children. This is not right in my children. I want my child, I know my child can do better than that. My child needs to do better than that, right? He has a goal for the Corinthians, their uh, spiritual growth. Now, he adds here uh, a discussion about Christ. He's saying, who is not weak among you, but mighty in you, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. I think this is alluding to one of the attacks uh, placed against Paul, that Paul was weak. He was unimpressive bodily. He seemed to have had some sort of a disease that was bothering him. He was persecuted. He was often in need. Right? He was maybe unimpressive in his speech. And uh, so he points out to the Lord Jesus and to the fact that the Lord Jesus was crucified in weakness. And what he means by that, as far as the world was concerned, there is nothing weaker than a person who's being crucified. His arms and feet are nailed 
to the cross. He's being abused. He is being mocked. And there he is hanging, suffering, and dying. Right? The, the absolute picture of weakness. But is that true about the Lord Jesus that he was weak? No, he was powerful. He was working out our salvation. He was providing for the sin, my sin, your sin, and every individual who ever lived. In three hours, he took care of the problem that it would take each of us an eternity to solve. So the Lord Jesus was not weak on the cross. He was displaying God's mighty power to save. But outwardly, to the world, he appeared to be weak. And so Paul says, we also are weak in him, meaning we appear to be weak. Right? As far as the world is concerned, we're not much to look at. But we shall live with him in the power of God toward you. So one way in which Paul's power will be demonstrated is in disciplining the Corinthians. It's not just that Paul is telling them, put this person out of fellowship. God is working alongside with Paul in bringing discipline into the lives of the people that are sinning, right? And are perhaps being put out of fellowship. We have a reference to that in 1 Corinthians 11, 30 through 32. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. So here we see many in the Corinthian church were weak and sick, and some have even died from their sickness. And Paul is saying, you know, this is God judging in your midst. As you guys are practicing these sins, God is taking action, and he's trying to correct your behavior. And I have no doubt, as Paul would put someone out of fellowship, that would become, in a special way, evident, right? That Paul was working with the power of God as he was applying discipline in the Corinthian church. So they need to not judge Paul because of his apparent weakness, but to recognize that God was working alongside with Paul, right? He had the power of God with him. Now, he continues in verse 5. He says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless he, indeed you are disqualified, but I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Paul's preference is not that the Corinthians will wait for his discipline to be convinced that he is uh, Christ's minister to them, right? Because there's already an evidence in existence. That evidence is the lives of the Corinthians themselves. They were saved. They were changed. Jesus Christ is in them. Uh, Paul has no doubt about the salvation of the Corinthians. It's very clear in the beginning of the first epistle. Paul recognizes the work God has been doing in their midst. He recognizes these are true believers. The issue is they're failing to mature. But as they are questioning Paul's authority, as they are questioning Paul's teaching, he has to defend who he is, the fact that he truly represents Christ. And so he's pointing to the evidence here. What is the evidence? It's yourself. Examine yourselves. 
Are you a believer in Christ? Has your life changed? Do you have the power of Christ in you? Where did that come from? It was me. I came and preached the gospel to you. Right? And therefore, please accept me. Accept my teaching. Right? Okay. Now Paul transitioned here really to the end, toward the end of the epistle. Says, now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified, for we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we pray, that you may be made complete. We see here Paul's heart for the Corinthians Really, his desire for them to reach maturity, right? He is asking that they should do no evil, that they should do what is honorable, and that they may be made complete. The word complete here in the Greek is katartizo. Katartizo. Um, and it means perfect. So when he wants them to be complete, he wants them to be perfect. I like sometimes looking at how a word gets used in the scriptures to understand its meaning best. And uh, this word is used by the Lord Jesus when he talks to his disciples in Luke chapter 6 and verse 40. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. The word perfectly trained is the same Greek word word, katartizo, everyone who is complete, everyone who is perfect. Uh, discipling was a process where you took somebody new along, right? Jesus was recognized as a religious teacher, and someone may have said to Jesus, you know, I want to follow you, I want to be like you. And Jesus would say, okay, you can be one of my disciples. Now we know Jesus actually went out. There were a lot of people who wanted to follow Jesus, and at some point he went out and he chose 12 that they might be with him all the time. And as they were with him all the time, they would see how Jesus would live. They would hear what Jesus was teaching. And as a result, they could become like him. That was the goal of a disciple, to become like a teacher. Right? And a perfect disciple, Katartizo, is one who became just like his master. Right? So that is what Jesus wanted for his disciples. He wanted them to become like him. Right? And uh, that is what Paul wanted for the Corinthians. He wanted them to become like the Lord Jesus. He actually, he says it later. I'm going to borrow from a verse I was going to read later. He says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Paul wanted to become like Jesus because he knew that's what Jesus wanted him to do. And he wanted the Corinthians to become like Paul, who was becoming like Jesus, because he knew that's what God wants him to. And you know what? He also wants the same for you and me today. He wants each and every one of us to become like the Lord Jesus. Right? That is our true potential. Right? That is what it means to be complete. Complete. How much did Paul want it for them? Well, he wanted it more than his own spiritual success, right? He says, 
uh, I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. And he says, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. I uh, made it by God's grace into uh, UC Berkeley when I was younger. And uh, my mom told me, you know, I always wanted to go to Berkeley. And I'm so happy that you made it. And you could wonder, well, should she be happy? Shouldn't she be jealous? Because she wanted to go and she didn't get to go and now I got to go in her place. But you see, that's not a parent's heart. Right? A parent's heart rejoices in the success of their children. In fact, it rejoices more. Uh, my daughter plays soccer and yesterday, you know, me and some other dads played against her and some other kids. And uh, when she made a good move and got past me and scored against my team, I rejoiced. <laughs> Seems crazy, right? But that's the father's heart. That's a parent's heart toward their children. I really, your good, your success means more to me than my own. And so really, Paul's desire for the Corinthians to become complete was greater than his own success. Uh, second, I should have probably mentioned it first, at least it comes first in the verse. Uh, he wanted it for them because it was the true potential. I know I mentioned it already, but it's important to note it in the passage as well. It says, for we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. He's not asking the Corinthians to be pretentious. Sometimes we think, well, we should just pretend to be good. Paul says, no, no. I know Jesus Christ is in you. Right? I know the true potential that you have. I just want to see you living up to that potential. Right? Become the people that he wants you to be. The people he enables you to be. Okay, uh, now I want to make another note about being complete. I have here another little section in my notes. Uh, because in verse 11, Paul repeats it, but in a different tense. He says, finally, brethren, farewell, become complete. So in verse 7, or rather verse 9, he was praying to God that they would become complete or mature Christian. But in verse 11, he gives it as a command. He gives it as a command. So the question comes to us, can we, by our choices, affect our spiritual growth? Can we, by our choices, determine whether we become complete, whether we uh, become like the Lord Jesus ourselves? And uh, the answer for that, of course, is, is yes. Otherwise, it would not be a command. God will not give us a command in an area we have no choice. So our choices do affect it. <clears throat> and I have a couple of thoughts of what can be done, what can we do to become more spiritually mature. My daughter uh, started uh, American high school this fall, and uh, she gets to take geometry. I don't know if any of you uh, had to take geometry. I have a picture of that. Remember that stuff? <laughs> Looks intimidating, doesn't it? You know, if you haven't, you know, been studying geometry recently, it's like, what's that? Oh, how do I do that again? 
Um, my daughter has a test coming, I believe on Tuesday. It'll be tested for chapter one. I hope it doesn't bring anybody bad memories of being tested. How can my daughter assure that she will do well on that test? How can she assure she will do well on that test? Any suggestion? I'm sorry? Study, very good. Uh, my mom had this strange thing she would do. Uh, she would sleep on her book. She literally put a you know, geometry book under the pillow and would sleep on it. That doesn't work. Don't, don't, don't try it at home. <laughs> she has to study. What should she study in the chapter? Which, which, which uh, examples, which section should she study? Chapter one, yeah, okay. Test is on chapter one. Which part of chapter one should she study? All of it. All of it is the correct answer, right? If she wants to be prepared for that test, she needs to study all of it, right? She needs to understand all the different sections, ideally all the questions that were assigned for, home for homework, all the examples, right? If you study those and you know those, will she do well on the test? She'll probably do very well. Right? If she doesn't, if she says, ah, I think, I'm going to get asked about the one in the middle. So I'm going to study that one. Right? You know, that's, that's going to hurt you when the test comes and that's not the question that's asked. Oh, there'll be probably several questions. Right? You have to study all of it. Well, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, we're told that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, katartizo, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So according to this verse, if we want to be complete, katartizo, we need to know the word of God. Which part of it? Which part of it? All of it. All of it. Right? So that's key. Uh, you know what? Life is more complicated than a geometry test. You're going to run into all kinds of problems out there. And uh, the best way to be prepared is to know the book that God gave us. Right? Because all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. If I run into problems and I want to know what I need to do, I need to know what God says in his word. Second key for spiritual growth can be taken from James chapter 1. James chapter 1 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect, katartizo, and complete, lacking nothing
when uh, we were about to have our first child, I feel I shared this illustration like every sermon, so please forgive me. If you've been here before, if you haven't heard it, consider yourself lucky. But uh, we, we got a call when we were pregnant with our first child that uh, the child was going to have uh, Downs and uh, hydrocephalus and maybe, maybe other problems besides. And that put me and my wife through a period of, uh, of trial, especially intense for probably about a week or two until we had a second test. And the second test said, well, probably not down. Hydrocephalus maybe, but we don't know for sure. So we had already a gleam of hope there. And you know, we brought it before the saints and the saints were praying for us. God has given us encouragement in his word. So you know, we were doing much better after, after a week or two. At first it was especially difficult. But you know what it did for us? One thing that trial did for us is it changed the way we look at people with, dis with disabilities and uh, people who have children with disabilities because we realized this could be us, right? This could be us. Could be our daughter, right? There was a change that was wrought in us and um, I believe that's what James is talking about he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. We don't like trials. We didn't like hearing that from the doctor. But it says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What does it mean to me? that God works on us during our trials to change our character. So it's one thing to know what's true. You could have told me, but Noah, you know, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. So what's the problem? So your neighbor has a child with disability. The word of God says you should love them. I don't need this trial to make me, but it changed me all the same, right? You know, knowing, we say, is half the battle, but it's only half the battle, right? There's work that has to be done. You must go on the battlefield and fight the battle if you want to win. Knowing is only half the battle. God has to change us. Uh, I had an illustration. I think I may have shared this in the past, too, but uh, it's called metalworking. I uh, took material science when I was in college. I just mentioned it. Um, and uh, one of the things you'll notice, you know, these days we don't have a lot of metal shops around, but if you were to go, say, to uh, Ardenwood Farm, uh, on certain days they'll have a metalsmith there and they'll show you how they actually used to make metal tools. And one of the things they do to metal before they try to shape it is they heat it up until it's glowing red hot. And uh, in school, I learned why. I mean, if you hit metal hard enough when it's cold, it won't change shape, it'll just break. It'll just break it. If you actually want to shape the metal, you have to heat it up. And it has to do with the fact that inside the metal, you have these grains. And the grains have walls. And for the metal to change shape, those walls need to move. And that requires a certain amount of mobilities of the atom inside of there. I know it's getting a little bit out there. But uh, the way to achieve that is to heat it up. As you heat up the metal, you're increasing the mobility of the atoms 
the metal is becoming more malleable, meaning you can actually now change the shape of the metal without breaking it. And you and I, like it or not, are like that piece of metal. And in order for God to change us, he has to apply some heat to our lives. Right? And that's what trials are. Trials are designed to test us. They're designed to make our lives difficult for the purpose that God can change us and make us more like his son. To become complete. Katatitsa. It doesn't happen without trials. God has to have his way of working on our lives. What's our role in that? Well, okay, I don't want trials. I don't know why this trial came. What should I do? Well, what James tells us is let patience have its perfect work. Meaning, we have to be patient. We don't know why this trial is here. I think it's okay to pray and say, Lord, show me why this trial is in my life. Or Lord, take it away, <laughs> you know, in your time, right? But what we cannot do is we cannot take a shortcut out of God's will. When uh, we went to Stanford after the doctor looked at a child's uh, ultrasound and said, oh, she has this and she has that, I'm sending you to Children's Hospital in, in uh, Stanford so you can uh, you know, have somebody else give you a second opinion. The first person we saw talked to us about having an abortion. And uh, you know what? Would have made our lives easier, right? Would be easier not to have a child with disability. But that's not God's will, right? God's very clear about abortion in the Bible, right? God made us after his own image, and uh, we are not to take a life, right? So that would be the equivalent of murdering our own child. But that's, that's the, the danger, right? If you're in a trial, you might choose to take a shortcut, and that's not the right response, right? Lord, I don't know why this happened, but... Uh, Show me your way, your way in this trial. What is it that you want me to do? And then God can use it like a metal worker to shape your life, to shape your character into what he wants it to be. Okay. Um, continuing in our passage. So that was a little bit of an aside. You know, what, what is our contribution? What can we do? to become spiritually mature. Paul says in verse 10, Therefore I write these things, being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given to me for edification and not for destruction. I want us to put ourselves, if we can, in Paul's shoes. Paul, uh, at this time, I think is in Macedonia. And that's where he's writing this letter from. And he just got a report from Titus. He sent Titus ahead to Corinth. Titus went there, kind of checked out on things, and came back and gave Paul a report. And uh, there was some good news, right? They seem, at least some of them received Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, which we don't have in the Bible, well, and seem to be turning back to Paul. But there's at least some a remnant that is still rejecting Paul, refusing to accept his authority. There's some that are continuing in this sin. 
and Paul is receiving this message from Titus, what should Paul do? What should Paul do? And uh, there's a couple of options I can think of. He can walk away. You know what? I'm just going to cross Corinth off my tour. You know, I'm going to go to churches that appreciate me. I don't have to go to Corinth. If they don't want me, you know, I don't need to go there. It's their loss. Right? He could have done that. Right? Uh, second, he could have said, you know what? I'm going to go there, and I'm going to take care of this problem right now because this is not acceptable. But he doesn't do that. He takes option number three, which is to write this letter to them. Why? Why? He says, lest being present, I should use sharpness. Uh, my wife and I are learning to be parents. Right? We have a 14-year-old and three younger than her. We're still learning to be parents. <laughs> and uh, occasionally, our children try our patience. We've asked them to do something. We've asked them to do something. They don't do it. We may have disciplined them over it multiple times. And still, they don't do it. And uh, the temptation, or you know, honestly, what happens a lot of time is we get upset <laughs> and we raise our voice and we use sharpness of speech with them. We, you know, tell them how upset we are and how wrong they are in what they have done. And what Paul is saying is that is not what he wanted to do. He didn't want to be sharp with them. What we're learning is often more effective is to be gentle. It doesn't mean let them continue to do the wrong thing, right? But before, you know, you lose your temper, before you're yelling at your children, before you're using sharpness of tongue with your children, you know, try to speak to them gently. <laughs> you know, take, take a little bit of extra time, get a little bit closer, you know, in a way where they can sense your love, and speak to them about what they're doing and ask them to change. Right? And that's what Paul is doing in this letter. Instead of going to Corinth, instead of using sharpness, sharpness, which he could have, according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for distraction, he could have done that. So I'm gonna I'm gonna write a letter instead. Why? Because I don't quite trust myself if I go to Corinth. And if, I, if I'm writing the letter, I can say the things I want to say in a loving way and try to reach their heart before I'm there in person. Listen to some of these verses. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2, 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Chapter 7, verse 3, I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. And just in the previous chapter, verse 15, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. So 2 Corinthians really is a love letter to the church. Right? Paul is trying to reach them with his love, trying to open his heart 
before them, that they'll realize how much he loves them. As he corrects them, what they're doing is not right, but he is trying to reach them in love and get to correct their behavior before he is there and has to apply discipline, right? That's his last choice. He, he will apply discipline, but his desire really is to turn their heart before he has to do that. Okay, finally, what can we learn from 2 Corinthians? Uh, it's something I noticed as I studied the Bible that every book has its own purpose. Every letter, even some that may seem very similar, are written with a different purpose. There's something else that God wants us to learn from them. What is it for 2 Corinthians? Well, 2 Corinthians really, more than any other letter, reveals the heart of an apostle to those he ministers to. Right? Paul loves the Corinthians. The Corinthians are rejecting him. And in this letter, Paul opens his heart to them. And we get to see how it is that a man of God feels about those he ministers to. Or I should say ought to feel. Right? And that's really our application. We want to take away from this epistle. Paul said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Right? We should develop that same heart for people as we seek to minister to them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful epistle you've allowed us to study and uh, gain insights from. We thank you for the heart of Paul. We thank you how that really reflects the heart of Christ, the heart that you have for us, your desire for us to uh, reach our full potential as your children. We pray for help. We know that uh, uh, many are experiencing trials, and we know your trials have a good purpose in our lives. We just pray for that strength for the way of bearing underneath them to seeing what is that good uh, work, that good purpose that you're trying to accomplish in our lives. Help us also have a heart like Paul in uh, loving others, trying to minister to them and doing it in a way that, that is effective and assures them of our love, of your love to them. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.